singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show is Professor Angus Fletcher. Angus is a neuroscientist who decided to change his career by doing a PhD on Shakespeare, of all things, at Yale. Then he went on to Stanford and worked also with a number of clients from Hollywood studios to DARPA and the US Special Forces. Angus has also had some very interesting insight in what artificial intelligence can or can not do. And he got to be uh, well known for what he calls uh, a proof that computer AI lacks the physical hardware to replicate human creativity. He is working at the sort of a intersection between neuroscience and storytelling, which he calls story science. And he's currently a professor at Ohio State University at Project Narrative, if I've got that right. So without further ado, welcome to Singularity FM, Angus. Thank you, Nicole. I'm happy to be here and welcome to my basement. I wish that I was in the slightly more habitable parts of my house, but my kids are home due to a ice day. So you're going to have to bear with the uh, forlorn background. Which part of the world are you in? So I'm in Ohio right now, which uh, is not a place I ever thought I would be living, but is actually a really wonderful place. I would encourage people to come out if they're, they're interested. I was recruited here. I used to work uh, in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. Um, and I got this phone call to join this kind of think tank called Project Narrative. And so I uprooted my life and moved to the middle of nowhere. You know, funny story. I had a keynote speech at uh, Ohio State University, though I'm not sure if it was at uh, the main campus or one of the, the smaller campuses, but two things. First, I was very, very impressed, and I quite liked the, the whole ambience, the atmosphere and everything. And second, I was actually moderating a panel uh, after my keynote of computer scientists. And there, you know, the Department of Computer Science and, and a number of other luminaries, all computer scientists, all PhDs. And I thought it would be good if I kick off the discussion by a simple question. What is computer science? And then that was it. It was a free for all. It was such a, I don't want to call it epic disaster, but it was such a heated discussion and such a lack of consensus among those experts in the field about what computer science is and is not and what it is actually about that we never managed to move on from from that after for for a whole I think it was about 90 minutes even well I would believe that because I mean this is a kind of classic thing if you ask experts a basic question they will immediately malfunction like if you ask me what narrative is just be prepared for like hours and hours and hours of qualification and humming and hawing and arguments. So that's that's basically the proof that expertise is nothing, is that experts can't talk about anything simple or basic in a comprehensible manner. Well, and, and you know, usually I actually started a lot in a, in a lot more subversive way, right? Which I didn't do in, on that particular occasion. So usually uh, I was giving a, 
sort of like a, a small scale invocation ceremony at a sort of a computer science class once. And I, being my best sub subversive kind of version, uh, I asked uh, the tricky question, what is computer science about? And of course, uh, total pandemonium ensued. And mind you, those were fourth year computer science students there. So they're not like just starting or anything, including several professors and so on. And given the lack of consensus, then I, I made it even worse by quoting Edsker Dijkstra, who said that computer science is as much about computers as uh, astronomy is for te uh, about telescopes. <laughs> I mean, that's fabulous. And I, I should say, I mean, I myself, I mean, I don't have a definition of computer science for you. And I actually knew basically zero about the workings of computers until about maybe five years ago when I was brought in to work on this AI project. And then since then, I've had this fascinating education, but entirely from a kind of technical perspective and not at all from a theoretical perspective. And it's only recently myself that I've read any works of theory and kind of, you know, equated myself with Alan Turing and, and, and any of these things. And so I do think it is really possible to have these totally extremely different views of computer science based on whether you're working on a small problem within the field or on a kind of hardware thing, or whether you're a kind of theoretician and you're sort of imagining, or whether you just see computers really as logic instruments. And, you know, they don't really have anything specifically to do necessarily even with computers or even computation. You know, they're basically about kind of accelerating this ancient mode of thinking developed by Aristotle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's like a million ways you could go. And I'm afraid I won't give you much enlightenment on that particular score, uh, as I said, because that's not really my area of expertise. I'm a little bit more like a quirk in the system that arrived accidentally and has some kind of like weird insights based on that. I know, I know. And we're going to turn immediately towards your area of expertise. So you can tell us a little more about that project, that AI project that you're working on. Or I know that you cannot perhaps say many details about what you do for DARPA or the US Special Forces and stuff like that. But maybe you can give us some generalities just so that sort of we can get a, an idea. But before that, the reason why I mentioned that thing is because, you know, I just wanted to be the subversive person who makes computer scientists consider the possibility that computer science may not even be about computers at all. And which is what one of the best computer scientists of the 20th century, Edsker Dijkstra, was pointing with his quote, uh, and, and that may be about something completely different, which is to say, what I propose is perhaps the meaning of being human. And one person who pushed me towards that direction was... Uh, the, the the father of the geminoid uh, ro robots, uh, uh, Professor Hiroshi Ishiguro from University of Osaka, because when I ask him, why do you want to create robots? His answer is to find out what it means to be human. Well, I think that's brilliant. And I will agree insofar as I think that computers take something that is human and they almost make it more than human. And at the same time, in doing that, they also reveal all the things 
that they haven't taken from our humanity and all the things that they don't do that we do. So it's very clarifying to look at a computer because in some ways it's more human than we are. And in other ways, it's not human at all. And in the kind of distinction that is drawn there, it, it throws into relief exactly what we are and what we would need technology to be to make it more human if we wanted to go in that direction. Or, you know, maybe we don't want technology to be more human. Maybe we like the fact that it's different from us. You know, maybe it's free from some of our faults and our foibles and that we can kind of put the pedal down and kind of accelerate it in its own direction. But either way, there's no question that to be a human is to always look at everything around us, including the things we make, and to think on some levels that it's ultimately a mirror into ourselves. Speaking of being human in a mirror onto yourself, what makes a neuroscientist one day suddenly decide to do a PhD in Shakespeare of all topics? I mean, we're not talking about a little tweak in career. We're talking about a fundamental radical shift, almost a denial in a way, if you will. Some scientists would consider that as a slap in the face. <laughs> like, didn't you learn anything here for the past however many years? What in the world make you take that very human decision, in my view? Yeah, no, you're completely correct. Well, first of all, I will be honest and say that many, uh, I, I got a lot of resistance from the lab that I was working in. And in fact, some of the scientists who had mentored me actually told me that I was wasting my life by going to study Shakespeare. So you, I completely agree that it was a very contentious decision. And I will also say that when I arrived to study literature, it quickly became clear to the people who had invited me that, that I thought very differently from them and was in many ways not at all welcome. And my first couple of years at Yale, they spent trying to expel me from the program. And really <laughs> the only reason I got in to the program in the first place is because I sort of hacked my way in Uh, I obviously, you know, I, I had done very well in neuroscience and was very well respected in that field. And so, you know, I had good credentials in that regard, but I had nothing in literature. And what I discovered is that in order to get into a literary department, you had to take this test, the GRE, uh, to kind of prove yes. that you knew literature. And so I approached the GRE like a scientist. I got all the copies of the GRE. I read all the questions, but then also read all the answers. I identified all the texts that occurred in either a question or an answer. And then I promptly basically went to the equivalent of an encyclopedia and wrote down the plots for all of these possibilities, memorized them all. And I then went into the GRE and got basically a perfect score, just about the highest score that anyone in Yale had ever seen. And they wow. thought, this guy must be amazing because he's a <laughs> neuroscientist who apparently knows everything about literature. And of course, I arrived and, and, and knew nothing about literature. And the only reason I did so well on the test is because most literary majors didn't even bother to study for the test because literary people never bother to study for anything. So um, <laughs> as, far, as far as my motivations for the switch, um, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about um, how computers kind of throw into relief what's human. When I was working in this lab, so to be clear, I was working in a neurophysiology lab. So when you say neuroscience, it can mean a billion different things. I was working in a neurophysiology lab in the med school at the University of Michigan. And we were basically studying how it was that brain cells talk to each other. So we were studying the mechanics of what causes vesicles to be released into the synapse and, and this kind of thing. Um, And at that time, I was reading a lot of papers as we were kind of studying the communication. And I realized that pretty much everyone at the time thought that what was going on in the brain was some version of computation. And the brain was basically some kind of computer. And so basically neurons were either on or they were off. And there was this kind of binary thing, you know. Um, and then that, you know, could be 
merged in certain ways with, with analog and all these other kinds of things. But basically the brain operated like a computer in the sense that it was a sense-making apparatus that took on data, recorded that data, used it to make decisions. Um, and it seemed like the goal of improving the brain's performance was getting it to analyze more accurately what data was solid data and helping it make more logical decisions. And so that was kind of the, the, the state of affairs. And I started to realize that even though that made a lot of logical sense, it wasn't at all really what was going on in the brain. Um, the brain didn't take on very much data. Unlike a computer, a brain can really only handle a few data points at a time before it gets completely confused and just ignores everything. Um, a lot of times brains make decisions with no data at all, you know, which is commonly known as bias, which is often seen as a negative thing, although I'll attempt to convince your listeners that bias is in fact actually usually a positive thing for a lot of reasons. Um, and, you know, also, you know, all these things, you know, in terms of making decisions and whatnot, most brains don't actually spend very much time at all making decisions. Um, they initiate actions, which is a completely different thing from making a decision. To make a decision is to come and see, oh, here are two possibilities. But to initiate action is just to go for something or to intervene or just to do. And it doesn't imply or require any choice from some other alternative, you know, unless you want to do so uh, uh, retroactively, logically. So I just realized like, the, the brain was just working very differently from a computer. And it had these powers, including creativity and emotion that seemed to be real drivers in, in what it was doing that allowed it to operate in low data environments, even no data environments. And so I thought, well, to understand those things, you should go to literature, <laughs> or at least the arts in general, because the arts is a great place where creativity and emotion are fathomed, understood, explored, and atomized. And I had this idea in my head, which turned out to be completely wrong, that if you went to study Shakespeare at Yale, they would have these deep insights into how creativity works, into how emotion works. And I thought I would just be there for a couple of years, learn those things, and then come back to the neuroscience lab and apply them. But instead, it turned out, and we can get into this if you want, people in English departments actually think surprisingly similarly to computer scientists. Uh, they actually think that literature is a series of symbols, which are supposed to be analyzed as data and so on and so forth, and that you're supposed to interpret them just like a computer would interpret data. And it just became rapidly clear to me that that actually wasn't how literature was working at all, and that people in literature departments were doing this thing that was really unliterary. And that kind of started me on this quest to sort of understand literature better and how it worked in the brain as a kind of long way of trying to figure out this big puzzle, which is why it is that we think, create, feel, and so on and so forth the way that we do. Wow, that's that's such a fascinating personal story. And so you are kind of an outsider contrarian among neuroscientists. And again, the same unwelcome outsider contrarian at the department of, was it English or literary studies or? Yeah, it was the, it was the Department of English Language and Literature as it was technically known. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Okay, and then, so so you you end up with a, with a PhD on Shakespeare. And then how does one who has a background in neuroscience, but let's say at the sort of undergraduate, did you have a master's degree at neuroscience? No, no, simply, I simply had a BS. I mean, the, the bachelor of science. Okay. So how does one with a bachelor of science in neuroscience and then a PhD in Shakespeare gets to have clients like DARPA, the United States special forces? I mean, Hollywood makes sense, but, but, uh, so so Hollywood is kind of logical, but again, DARPA and U.S. Special Forces are kind of totally out there in a way. I mean, how many English profs do you know? I don't know any English prof who goes and teaches U.S. Special Operations or, or DARPA how to do their business. 
Well, I want to be completely honest and say that I'm not teaching DARPA or special operations how to do anything. You know, I'm simply, you know, you know, kind of in these, I'm, I'm simply within, let me just say broadly, I'm within the Department of Defense doing advising stuff. Um, but yeah, the way that it all came about, I can tell you the full story. It's a fascinating story. It's a weird story. Um, so I wrote a book last year that sort of talked about all the kind of technological breakthroughs in literature. And when you start thinking about literature, as I do, as a technology that has evolved over time to help get more performance out of the human brain, and when you actually start to break down how it works, you start to see uh, how it meshes with the operating system of the human brain, um, you have all these insights into why it is that stories and narratives and, and all these things around us work the way that they do. And so I, I wrote a book about that. And I then got a call from a professor at the University of Chicago in the business school. His name is Greg Bunch. He said to me, Angus, he said, this book is amazing. He said, I really think that it would be useful in business because, you know, a lot of business people are obviously, you know, very interested in kind of, you know, marketing and these kinds of things. And, you know, this kind of power that you have in story. And I said to Greg, I said, well, that's wonderful. And I'd be, you know, I'd be happy to chat with people, but I'm less interested in using story to control other people that I am and what it can do to help you with your own head. So I'm not interested in kind of rhetoric as a way of, you know, <laughs> manipulating other people. I'm interested in how you kind of reprogram yourself um, because I really think at the end of the day, we are our own worst enemies and best friends and we have to kind of figure out the gearing in our own skulls. That's uh, the Socratic approach, by the way. And he had a special ugly name for those people. He called them sophists. Uh, uh, so he hated the sophists and his thing was that philosophy is about kind of self-improvement, about analyze, the analyzed li un unanalyzed life is not worth living kind of idea. Um, so yeah, go well, ahead. No, and as you know, I mean, there's a chapter on Socrates in the book and I think that Socrates is a very literary person as was Plato who recorded and you know, I mean, basically, as far as we know, if, if, if Plato is to be trusted, Socrates spent his last hours reading Aesop. So he was reading, you know, literature. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so anyway, completely agree with all that. Anyway, so I, uh, you know, I, I say to Greg all these things. He says, oh, he says, that's wonderful. He says, that'll be even better. He says, if you can actually help business people kind of, you know, have more courage or have more empathy or, or think more scientifically, all these things that literature can do, he says, that'll be wonderful. So start working with him. It goes really well. I get a phone call from him one day. He says, Angus, he says, how would you like to talk to the U.S. Army? The uh, Commander General Staff College uh, would like <laughs> you to go in and chat with him. I said, really? He said, oh, yeah. And so I went in. I met um, uh, a couple of uh, faculty there, um, Rich McConnell and uh, Kenneth Long, uh, both uh, retired lieutenant colonels, uh, now professors there at the Commander General Staff College. And, and so we started having these conversations and particularly about how it is that literature and stories can empower you to respond to dynamic, chaotic, volatile environments, how you can help make your brain anti-fragile, able to adapt and create um, when it's bombarded with, with noise and uh, unreliable information. And they said, Angus, could you write a handbook for us, could you write the kind of new field guide for creative thinking um, for us to, to hand out here to all the majors and uh, other um, general officers, general staff officers who are on their way to become generals? So of course I was totally honored. With their help, I wrote that field guide. To my surprise, that field guide 
proved a kind of underground success um, and it has gone everywhere. I mean, it's, it's now through all many different branches um, and, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much, but it's basically gone up through the ranks and, 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 uh, and is, is all over the place. So I then get a call from uh, a wonderful guy um, uh, who's in uh, USASOC, uh, uh, U.S. Army uh, Special Operations Command. Um, and uh, he says to me, Angus, he says, really interested in this field guide. Would you be interested in maybe coming and uh, uh, doing a little stuff with uh, special operations? Um, his name is uh, Major uh, Tom Gaines. So Major Tom Gaines brings me in and we start kind of doing some work, work in there. And, um, you know, basically a lot of it's that creativity stuff, but a lot of it is other, other kinds of things. Like for example, without getting too specific, um, if you have to decide very quickly to pull a trigger or not pull a trigger, how do you train someone to do that? Right. Um, can you increase uh, their ability to, to, to pull the trigger faster when they need to and to and increase, decrease the likelihood that they will pull it when they shouldn't? Can you do that with literature? Can you do that with story? Um, well, you can if the operating system of the brain is story. So that's kind of how that work happened. Um, and then from there, I, you know, was encouraged and, and uh, for, by various people, um, including my co-author. I mean, if you want to know more about this stuff, by the way, a, a Wired article came out last week that I wrote with Eric Larson, uh, who um, is the author of The Myth of Artificial Intelligence, which is a bestseller last year on Harvard. Um, and you know, with the help of, of Eric and, and Todd Hughes and, and other people um, who are in and around the defense community, um, I have started talking with DARPA about possibly building a machine that can actually, that would be an alternative to a computer, wow. but can do narrative and do stories. And so that's very much up in the air. And I don't want to pretend uh, like, you know, anything more than that is happening at this point, but, but that, is, that is a live conversation. And whether or not it happens um, in the next year or so, it's going to happen at some point because uh, the mechanics of how to do it are relatively straightforward and the payoff is relatively high. So I'm pretty sure that at some point someone will build the machine and uh, it will take over from the computer um, as the kind of future of intelligence. So you're talking about, the, and I don't know if what, what you can say, but it seems to me it's it's like some kind of a storytelling machine or at least story, I don't want a sto story composing machine. It's It's a machine that can come up with and analyze stories if I get it right. Well, I mean, that would be, so first of all, let me be clear. The computer itself evolved in stages. And so, you know, ENIAC is basically our kind of first example of an actual computer. And if you look at ENIAC now, it seems almost ridiculously uh, incompetence. I mean, it has no memory function. It has to be rewired for every single task. It has, you know, it's just huge. So the kind of machine that we would be talking about would be the equivalent of a kind of ENIAC. It would be an incredibly primitive thing um, and it would not actually compose stories. Its function would be to solve um, kind of narrative problems. So basically what the way the computers work now as, as I imagine everyone knows is, is through kind of brute forcing correlations. So they identify patterns, correlational patterns. That's how logic works, it identifies. But it can't do actual causal thinking. Even when you have things like the do calculus and whatnot, what you're essentially doing is you're taking causes and effects and putting them into sets and correlating them. You're not actually thinking from cause to effect. 
But the human brain can think from cause to effect for reasons we can talk about. And you can build machines that, that move from cause to effect. So, you know, the question is, well, could you build a machine to solve a, a causal reasoning problem? So, for example, a computer can tell you that fire and smoke are associated or correlated. So they can say, if fire, then smoke but also if smoke, then fire, because that's the important thing about correlation is reversible. But could you build a machine that says actually fire is causing the smoke? Smoke is not causing the fire. Could you build a machine that thinks like that and solves very complicated problems like that? So if you have hundreds of interconnected events, the machine can say this event is causing the other events. That's kind of what we're talking about. And that would be kind of a, a storytelling machine um, in a sense but it wouldn't literally be writing Hollywood scripts or anything like that. But if it's storytelling machine that can do all that stuff, uh, that is to establish causational relationships, uh, would you not call it artificial intelligence? I mean, how would you call it? Yeah, well, no, it would be a kind of artificial intelligence. It would just be non-computational artificial intelligence. I mean, the reason this is important in my own work, and I've gotten a lot of uh, flack from people who I don't actually think understand computing that well, because I've got on the record and said, computers can't do certain things. And then people get very angry about this. And then they say, oh, well, you're acting as a computer, as humans are special or something like that. No, you have to acknowledge what one machine can do and can't do if you're going to build another machine <laughs> that, can, can, that can do those other functions. So if people had sat around and said, well, you know, if you drive a car fast enough, eventually it will fly. You would never get an airplane. You would just get people building faster and faster cars and none of them would ever fly. And at some point, someone has to say, no, we're going to do something different. We're going to build the wing and, and so on and so forth. And, and that's basically what I think. I think the computers are actually quite simple. They do a series of very simple functions. They're all logic functions. And you know, for a long time, people have wanted to believe that all intelligence is logic. And there's a huge history of this. I mean, Plato thinks this. Obviously, the IQ test is another example of this. And this is this idea of general intelligence, that all intelligence can be reduced to a core set of logical functions. But you know, my own career, my own belief is that there are different forms of mechanical processes in the human brain that do different things to solve different problems. And logic can solve some problems in the world, but other problems have to be solved by other mechanics. And so this machine would be for solving things that logic can't solve. Wow, that that's that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. There's so many ways I want to go from here, but perhaps it's a good time for us to step back a little bit uh, and touch on your book a little bit because uh, your your latest book, which is called Wonderworks: The 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature, which I have to say I listened to it fully uh, uh, inaudible because I'm trying to save my eyes. So I listened to most of the books uh, as audio versions lately. But then some very special books that I really, really like, I go, so in, in, this was one of those cases, I went ahead and bought immediately the Kindle version of the book so that I can actually start taking notes uh, as I'm reading the book my second time around because then I can actually export those notes and so on and so on. <clears throat> so I love your book. I think people should check it out. And I would be even more interested, and perhaps we should talk about that towards the end of our conversation, I'd be even more interested in your next upcoming book, which is called Story Thinking, because I think that goes even more into the core of what we're going to be talking about mostly today. 
Um, so first of all, let's start with with some fundamentals uh, in your book. What? Why do you say that literature is an invention or well, I mean, a tool? A tool. Okay. Well, tool. well, first of all, it's an invention because it doesn't exist in nature. Uh, humans had to create it, so I think that's obviously an invention. But the tool part is more interesting because. You know, people often think of literature largely as a kind of escapist thing, I suppose, you know, it's, 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 it's the opposite of something useful. And in fact, if you go to most modern English departments nowadays, they get very angry if you suggest that literature is useful in some way. They act as though you're besmirching literature. And actually, the purpose of literature is non-utility because it opens up this radical space of freedom where nothing needs to be useful and you get total meaning in that space. Um, and I'm completely fine with that insofar as if that's what you want to use literature for, that's completely fine. You know, you can use a tool to do anything you want. And, I'm, and if you want to find meaning, ultimate meaning in a spaceship or a fork, I'm not here to stop you. But I that think that's that coming from, sorry to interrupt, but I think that's coming from a famous quote by Oscar Wilde, who famously in one of his letters to a fan of his said that uh, one of the most distinguishing features of art is that it is perfectly useless or something to that effect. But go on, go on. That is... No, that is completely correct. That is completely correct. And it is, I have to say, I love Wilde and I think he's brilliant, but Wilde is a, is a kind of playful provocateur. And if, if taken literally, that quote just gets you very rapidly into this kind of aristocratic frame of mind where we should have a group of people whose job it is to sit in tenured positions in universities and do nothing useful forever. Um, <laughs> and so anyway, um, so anyway I'm, I'm okay with the fact that things in life don't always have to be useful to be meaningful. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. But the idea that literature could never be useful is what I'm resisting. Um, and, you know, in particular, literature evolved in a lot of fairly fraught situations where it required a fairly high investment of resources that were provided by individuals and then ultimately by the state. I mean, Athens is spending a lot of money to, to, to put on plays and whatnot. And why? And the core reason for that is that every tool is out there to solve a problem. As I say in the book, most tools that we have now are about solving the problem of our world. So how do you kind of fix things in our world? How do you make it easier to live and survive in our world? Literature does the opposite. Literature turns inward and it's about solving the problem of what's in our own head. Uh, and you know, the problem of our own head is of course very complicated because our head is very complicated. So it includes griefs and traumas and fears and anxieties and the catastrophe of death and the fact that we as humans need meaning in order to get up in the morning and all these kinds of things. But also on a more positive level, it includes the fact that we as humans want to have more courage, we want to have more joy, we want more love, we want more empathy. And you know, we also want to think more powerfully. We want to think more creatively, think more imaginatively. And literature has been developed to solve all those problems, troubleshoot all those things, but also empower our brain to be its fullest and most complete self. And that's why when you have a movie that you love or a book or a comic book that you love or a song even that you love, it sparks your brain and catapults it forward into becoming a kind of version of its better self. And what I do in the book is not just make that case, which I think is hopefully obvious to most people, but actually say, once you know that, let's go into the nuts and bolts of literature. Let's identify the specific inventions, the specific breakthroughs the, 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 that occurred. Let's, as far as we can, trace them back to their inventor. You can never know for certain, of course, but you know we do our best in the book. You know, And then let's connect it to the psychology and the neuroscience that explains why that they work the way that they do. And to do that is to realize that literature is not just 
one thing. So you don't just read one great work of literature like Hamlet and somehow it does everything for you. Hamlet has a specific function. You use it in a specific way. But if you're reading Hamlet and you want something else, you're not gonna be getting that something else from Hamlet. And you have to know which books of literature, just in the same way you have to know which medicines to put in your body or which tools to take out of your toolbox to use to solve any problem. And so it's supposed to be empowering by being particular and precise. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. And I want you to ask you to make the distinction between what you call literature and what I perhaps in my ignorance call story, or how would you differentiate between the two of them? Because to me, uh, you say that, that literature is what helps uh, us heal and grow our brains. And I love that. And, and that it was created by vets for vets. And I'm, and of course that that's coming in your book very clearly, especially you're talking about the sort of the Socratic Athens um, and and how you know the, the Peloponnesian War and all the the wars before that with the Persians after that during that constant kind of warfare, uh, lots of people who were veterans of the wars, people who had you know probably what we call today post traumatic stress disorder, and how. Uh, uh, well, it was at the time probably not literature as we understand it today, but probably, uh, as you say in the book, more like Greek tragedy that, that was kind of invented. I mean, first probably the poets like Homer and then eventually Greek uh, uh, tragic plays as they were played in the, in the theater or um, amphitheaters uh, across Greece to kind of heal uh, people and and help everyone else grow at the same time, which is a fascinating and and lovely, lovely way to put it. But to me, that's what a story does, personally. So, is there a difference? Uh, am I missing something? Because I would say this is what story does, and you say it's literature. Well, first of all, that's a beautiful and brilliant summary of my book, and thank you. Um, and second of all, no, from my perspective, there's not a very strong a difference between literature and story. I mean. Literature, um, I mean, if you want to be very technical about it, I mean, we could say that, you know, literature is a, is a certain part of story that's more experimental. Literature is more about taking risks and pushing the boundaries. And so, you know, literature is a little bit more maybe like theoretical physics or something where you're really kind of pushing at the margins and trying to get somewhere new and a lot of stuff is blowing up and not quite working properly. So literature kind of attracts that, but it, it's not literature in the sense that it's higher or more significant. It's, it's just more at the kind of limit edge, whereas story is just a natural process which occurs in every human brain all the time. Um, story is the main engine of literature. Um, but, but, you know, story is just something that can happen between friends. We can, you can just tell, share the story of your day. Um, story is something that can happen internally. You can plot or plan your life. And literature is more of a kind of event when you, where you kind of take a story and you refine it and you put it on display and you test it more rigorously against a public audience and you aspire for that story to live longer. Um, but, you know, it'd basically be the same as, as saying, you know, the difference between kind of engineering in your in your garage as opposed to actually building a blueprint that you want to pass on to engineers it's just a, a kind of on a spectrum of intensity right and and i i would say i would dare to say that literature is one instantiation or example of storytelling or story in action because other examples before that were poetry uh, Omer didn't have any written li literature it was all kind of the oral tradition right 
Um, then we have uh, play plays which are played on a stage and people don't read them but kind of watch the events unfold on a stage but but they're all, they're telling a story of course that's how they they grab us whether it's the story of the Iliad or the Odyssey or what have or one of the comedies even the, the first original Greek comedies uh, another instantiation is literature which is kind of technically written in my understanding and then finally more modern example of, of story could be for example uh, 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 all those virtual realities or, or even those very popular video games, which in my view have all the classic elements of stories, uh, but in a virtual game, which is why they're so meaningful and, and have such a strong grip on people, because they give people a meaning, they give them a purpose, uh, they give them a why, they give them a status, and they give them a community. And so... Uh, people who have the community uh, seek status and especially once they acquired it and a very strong reason why or a meaning, then they would be drawn to, to that particular uh, story, which in their case may be called, uh, you know, whatever one of those most favorite games, Halo or, you know, World of Warcraft or I'm not a gamer myself, but so I know of them, but I, I don't actually play them, so that's terrible. But but I think they all have the, the typical story elements in a new kind of a medium. So to me, I like how you that story is the engine of literature. I think it's the engine of all of those that I mentioned, but but it's it's in a way more fundamental, more more uh primal in that in that way. Well, we completely agree. And you know. To your point that literature technically means that which is writ, I mean, that's the, turns it into symbols, which are inert. And actions cannot be interpreted for technical reasons we can get into, but a symbol can. And so what, what happens over time is the more these things become viewed as literature, the more they become viewed as written, the more they become viewed as symbolic, the more we completely misunderstand what story actually is. Story is non-symbolic, uh, story is active, um, story takes place in time, it cannot be frozen on a page. The human brain is able to take words on a page and convert them back into story, uh, but they don't actually exist on the page as story. So I not only agree with you, I, I might actually kind of double down on this direction, if you're willing. Uh, fantastic. Well, uh, let me offer you sort of an entrance, if you will, and see, uh, give you the freedom to grab it in the, in the best way possible, in your opinion. So think about it this way. I have an audience of techno geeks, people who are not very, uh, who are actually uh, very technologically sophisticated, uh, very well educated with multiple advanced degrees in fields like heart science and engineering. Uh, so uh, reciting off the top of my head, over 90%, I think it was 93% of my audience have at least a, a bachelor's degree. Uh, about 60-some percent have a master's degree, and about 33%, I think, had a PhD of my audience. So I have the best, smartest, most educated audience in the world. But they're predominantly in the hard science, sciences. They're not in literature. They're not in the soft sciences. Many of them work in IT. Many of them work in startup companies or in tech companies, etc., etc. Why should any one of them care about story? Or literature. Well, 
however so, you want to call it. Well, let's, Why? Uh, let's, let's focus on story for the time being, because story is the main operating system of their brain. <laughs> and if you want to understand how your brain works and why your brain operates differently from a computer, for good or for bad, you want to understand how story works, because story is driving most of what you do. Um, and so to the extent that you want to understand both what you do on a daily basis and how to improve it, you need to understand how story works. And the reason to study literature is the same reason that if you went and got a, a bachelor's or a master's or, or a PhD, um, you, you, you study anything, which is to, to understand the most complete, rigorous, ambitious, detailed, fullest manifestation of a particular thing. So if you want to understand logic, you don't just read a kindergarten math book. Um, you read Frege, you know, or you read Hegel, or you read Aristotle's Organon, or you know, you read Bertrand Russell. You read logic and you learn logic. And if you want to understand story, you gotta read Shakespeare, you gotta read Maya Angelou and Sappho and all the writers who pushed the limit edge. And so really. The, the deep thing is to understand your own brain and to understand it as completely as you possibly can. That's the opportunity of literature. And, you know, in my own book and in my own research, I, I mean, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the difference between hard science and soft science. We can get into that. But I mean, I do approach it as a scientist in the sense that everything in there is about the machinery of how it works, why it works. And it's not about random opinions or symbolic interpretations or my ideology or anything like that. It's basically, how does this stuff actually function in the real world? And of course, if something in the book were proven to be incorrect and you know it weren't to function in that way, then we would delete that from the book uh, because the purpose of the book is not for me to hold forth on my opinions. It's to, it's to offer the kind of furthest extent of the science as it now exists. So, uh, and just one example, very famous example of, of a very famous scientist doing exactly what you're describing now, which is to say, taking literature to describe a, a fundamental scientific event was Oppenheimer at D-Day, uh, or not D-Day, Trinity, uh, when, when he, he quoted the Bhagavad Gita uh, 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 in saying, I am became death, the creator and destroyer of worlds. That's a scientist who used the most advanced science of the day to create the most powerful weapon. And yet science did not give him the tools to contextualize, to describe, or to even begin to understand what that tool means actually for us, for humanity, for our civilization in general, and how to put that into context of everything that's happened before that, that was happening in the moment, and that was likely to come out of it into the future. But yet, what? so, so he couldn't use science for that, and he went to the Bhagavad Gita, and he quoted from there. So I'll, I'll double down on that again, and I'll say, well, we wouldn't have the atom bomb if it wasn't for literature. Um, because, I mean, if you go back to the early 20th century, our whole discovery of radioactivity uh, through Marie Curie, the reason that took so long and was so, so challenging to people is because it completely uh, thrust them up against these two things, which were the indivisibility of the atom um, or the idea that energy could never be created out of nothing. Because what's going on with radioactivity? Where is this energy coming from? What's going on? Completely broke all the existing laws of physics and no one wanted to study it. And why did she study it? Well, she studied it 
uh, because she had this training in Polish Romantic poetry that brought her back uh, through uh, back to Shakespeare. And this wow. idea uh, of singular events. I mean, if you remember, one of the things that drives Hamlet is this idea that weird things are actually not blips to be regressed to a mean as they were in logic and in the Middle Ages, but they were actually the sign of some new and emergent situation. And so instead of doing what you do in logic and kind of take the outlying points and get rid of them, Hamlet says, think oppositely, see an outlying point as an opportunity to break the existing paradigm. And that's what Marie Curie did is she said, this radioactivity because she had this background in, in, in romantic poetry. This radioactivity is not to be discounted as people had done before because radioactivity had been known about for decades and people had kept discounting it. She said, no, I'm gonna remake the paradigm. And at the same time as Korea is doing that, if you want another example, you got Albert Einstein. What is Albert Einstein doing? He's spending most of his time either playing his violin or reading Goethe. Goethe, what, who is Goethe reading? Goethe is reading Hamlet. <laughs> And when you look at actually how um, Einstein discovers the laws of relativity, he doesn't really do it through math. He does it through these wacky mental stories where he imagines chasing a light beam. And he says, if I chase that light beam, uh, what would happen? Well, I would get to a certain point where I could actually see the oscillation frozen in time. And then he says- I think he was riding his bicycle when he came with that thought. And yes, looking yes, at, his, no. at his headlight, looking yes. at his headlight. This is exactly right. No, exactly. And so anyway, we can go into all the details of Einstein and kind of all the stories he told himself. I would encourage people just to go read them and not take my word for it. But the math came later. Einstein was good at math, but not brilliant at math. Um, and it was the stories that were inspired through his readings of Goethe. And again, the same tradition that we have Curie. So I don't think we would have the atom bomb if it wasn't for Shakespeare. And in general, our whole idea of experiment and science and all these things really comes to us from the stage. It comes to us from rhetoric. It comes from this idea that you can have a laboratory space where you try things like trying a new play, trying a new character, um, and then seeing the effects on an audience and through that feedback loop. So all of these things, so literature isn't just the way that we explain science to ourselves. Literature and story is a huge engine of science at least for humans. Could you have literature in another part of the galaxy without literature and story? Possibly, but at least as far as human history is concerned, literature and story is the driver of it. And so I just would encourage people to know that if you want to be the next Einstein, if you want to be the next Marie Curie, um, it doesn't hurt to read Hamlet. Wow, that's incredible. And of course, Oppenheimer himself was very well read on, on both the, the, the classics the poets and the philosophers. He was extremely well versed in the uh, in in literature. Um, uh, I had a great uh, idea here that I missed right now. Oh, but I, I love what you said about the 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 fact that literature is like one of the the engines of science. I I, I just love that thought. I, it's it's kind of very original, very out there, very kind of challenging for many scientists, perhaps. Well, so this goes back to what I think is the difference between this way science actually, the way the science works and the way that a lot of us are taught it in school. So the way that a lot of us are taught in school is that science is purely logical and that if you just get enough data and information, you can somehow draw conclusions from it. And this is totally inaccurate. That's the idea that people had about science in the Middle Ages. And then again, for a while after Newton, they had this idea that if you just had enough data, you could somehow induct 
from the data what the truth was. Like Sherlock and, Holmes did. Yes, well, this was Sherlock Holmes. You know, this is what he claimed that he did anyway, right? Yeah, despite yeah. all the smoking of opium and other kinds of odd activities that he was engaged <laughs> in at the same time. Yeah, but, but regardless, that's not actually how science works. Science works through these jumps. And if you go back into the early 19th century, um, you can see there's this guy, John Herschel, uh, who writes the kind of first book about this, um, in which he talks about the fact that deduction, that induction, induction just don't work. Logic just don't work. You have to kind of make these jumps. These jumps are narrative leaps of going from cause to effect, of saying, you know, and there's no way to capture or contain them within logic. And so since narrative, and since literature is the way that our brain learns how to make jumps, and as a simple example, just think to yourself when you read a science fiction story. When you read that science fiction story, you enter a different world. That world has different rules about what can happen and what can't happen based on you know, the technology or the characters, whatever. And then your brain starts to jump ahead and say, oh, would this be possible? Would this be possible? Would this be possible? And if it's a bad science fiction story, all sorts of things happen which contradict the inner rules, and your brain throws it aside and says, this is junk. But if it's a good science fiction story, all of a sudden these plot twists start to happen where these unexpected consequences of these simple rules start to manifest themselves. And these simple rules become the source of all these transformative and mind-blowing outcomes. And that is how a scientist's brain works. It works through imagination. That's why Goddard, the guy who's the father of the modern space program, of, of the modern rocket, he was inspired by H.G. Wells. He read science fiction. And so in general, what I would like to emphasize to scientists is that as important as logic can be, imagination is just as important. You have to make these leaps known as a hypothesis that cannot be proved uh, in advance, but can only be proved experimentally. And anything logical does not need to be proved experimentally. If it's logical, it's already proved automatically. So the fact that something needs to be proved experimentally is telling you it's a different kind of cognition and that cognition is story. That cognition is narrative. Um, and if you just spend all your time interpreting data, you get this into this famous problem, which AI has all the time, which is it just fits to a curve. It gets all the existing data, fits it to a curve, and then it is totally useless in predicting the future because it has just optimized to the existing data, but has not under, uncovered the, the deeper law that is actually causing the data to function in that way. So... Scientists, please read literature. It doesn't have to be Shakespeare, but it does have to be imaginative. And it does have to kind of excite your brain and make you feel like you're jumping into the future of the story. And as, as long as it's making you feel like you're jumping into the future of the story, it's activating those parts of your brain that, that help drive science. Yeah, and I think to your point, uh, Albert Einstein said that imagination is more important than intelligence and that if we want our children to be intelligent, we should not read them science, but fairy tales. Um, uh, because precisely that point, that fairy tales are kind of enhancing our imagination or our children's imagination. Uh, and of course, um, uh, all the, the, the kind of the, the scientific breakthroughs, as you, you pointed out, they happen at a point where, uh, as I think Martin Luther King Jr. was saying, faith is 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 the process of taking the next step up the ladder where you can't see the ladder kind of and I'm I'm kind of butchering the quote here but it's it's like basically taking the next step up while you can't see the ladder and yeah. and, and trusting in the process and of course the scientific method would self correct itself uh, eventually 
if you make the wrong step or if you have the wrong hypothesis, you're going to get the wrong result, result and then you're going to kind of uh, self-correct yourself. But, but speaking about the fact that science is not always logical, perhaps the best example is quantum mechanics, isn't it? Because it's both here and there. It both is a particle and, and a photon it, or all of those things, a wave and a particle at the same time. So all of it's here and there. It exists and it doesn't exist. You can predict the speed, but you can't predict the location and all of those things or one of them, but not the other. And by the way, once you start measuring it, you're already influencing the system. So you really cannot put yourself outside of the system ever. So you're always having some kind of impact on what's happening. And so it's very crazy, kind of illogical, if you will, but surely incredibly imaginative. And by the way, Niels Bohr uh, was also a big fan of the Bhagavad Gita, just like Oppenheimer, and was reading it very heavily while coming up with quantum mechanics, or the, the sort of the origins of the theory anyway. That's fascinating. And there's no question that quantum mechanics breaks induction because you can't observe <laughs> in a quantum system, you know? Um, so, so that kind of like, you know, that idea that somehow we could know where every molecule is in the universe and build a giant machine that could then therefore predict everything, you know, is, 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 is potentially stymied, stymied by that kind of And also in theory. logic, the, the, the observ there is no observer effect in logic, right? Of course. If no. something is true, it is true, period. Right, yes. but in quantum mechanics is not so. If you have an observer, the observer is already having an impact on the system, so the observed effect would be different than if you didn't have an observer. So, uh, so. Well, well, this is, again, I mean, the sort of, to me, the very fascinating fundamental difference between kind of viewing the world logically and through story. In logic, you predict the future. In story, you make the future. It's your actions that determine the future in story. And that seems illogical. I mean, I know when I was a freshman in college, if you told me that, I would say, well, that's, you know, that can't be the truth. You know, there's, there's predestination or if you just knew where all the atoms were and so on and so forth. But what you realize is that the ability of story is to go no data. You can tell a story based on no data. That's, you know, you can tell counterfactual stories. You can tell fictions. You can tell fairy tales. All these things are lower, even no data. And they allow you to basically make the future through your perspective. And so perspective becomes the important kind of determining thing in the system, just like you're talking about with quantum mechanics, as opposed to the system itself and some kind of objective truth kind of manufacturing everything. Yeah, and, and speaking of predicting the future, I love a quote from one of my favorite uh, kind of modern contemporary science fiction writers called Cory Doctorow, whom I've interviewed two or three times on my podcast before. He says, quote, I make no claim to predicting the future. I make up stories. Stories are better than predictions. Predictions tell us that the future is inevitable. Stories tell us that the future is up for grabs. I think this is just brilliantly said. I love that quote. I think that honestly is one of the more brilliant things I've ever heard. And it's completely true. And it goes back to this difference between logic and science as well, because I mean, science is about saying this could be true. I have to test it. I have to try it. And that's why science is always about coming up with different options, potential worlds that we could be living in and, and trying to figure out which one of those is real by kind of falsifying other worlds and doing things like that, you know, through the, through the scientific method. And that's also why, you know, a lot of times in our world, people get very aggressive if you don't accept science immediately and you're accused of being ignorant and stupid. And all this, kind of, you know, this is a kind of common thing that, oh, if people were only rational, they would accept science immediately. But it took people 60, 70 years to accept Darwinism. 
I mean, Darwin himself actually towards the end of his life started to question it because it's very, very hard to actually demonstrate these things. And then once you demonstrate them, it's very, very hard to kind of get your mind around the demonstration because they do break the existing logic of what went before. Otherwise, you know, Copernicus would have published his book and everyone would have been like, oh yes, it's proved, you know? Um, and so that's why science takes a long time to catch on, not because people are stupid, but actually in a way, because they're quite logical, they're just stuck in the old logic and it takes them a long time to kind of make that imaginative jump and kind of trust the new way of doing it. Um, and so to a certain extent, I often think of actually people who are fast adopters of scientists being the more creative and more imaginative as opposed to the more logical. Well, Angus, what can you tell us about project narrative and how does it fit within what we're talking about here today? So project narrative is the institute that I work at at Ohio State. It's, it's the think tank. It's the world's leading academic institute for studying stories, how they work. Um, I can give you sort of a, a very kind of quick pocket history, if you want, of, of project narrative. It's, its expertise is something technical known as narrative theory. Uh, and narrative theory basically started with Aristotle. It, uh, after Aristotle wrote the Organon, which he laid out all the laws of logic that then became hardwired into computers and have given us AI, he kind of thought to himself, maybe there's more than this. And part of the reason for that is he kept having these problems in his logic system, because even though the logic system worked really well for nouns and linking verbs, it was not at all working for action verbs. And the only way to kind of make action verbs, verbs work was to do, is to do the same thing that, that modern natural uh, uh, sort of language processors do and kind of break them from being action verbs into adjectives and linking verbs and do those kinds of complicated things that actually destroy what they do. And so Aristotle was wrestling with this problem of action verbs and narrative and story and, and, and all this stuff and kind of how it worked. And he went on this really interesting 15-year odyssey where he kind of like wandered around the Mediterranean and was like picking flowers on the Isle of Lesbos, these kind of interesting things. And he came back after that period and he wrote the Poetics. And in the Poetics, he, he basically says, narrative is different from logic. It works differently. It operates differently. And it has these effects on the human brain. And you can see these effects by looking at Greek tragedies. And he says, I'm going to give you a specific kind of story and I'm going to tell you how that story produces a catharsis. And I'm going to give you another kind of story and show you how that story produces wonder, which is kind of the beginning of spiritual experience. Um, and so this is the beginning of kind of mental health and mental well-being in the sense that catharsis is about improving our mental health and, and wonder is about improving our mental well-being. And so that's the kind of beginning of narrative theory there with Aristotle. And it was so different from what anyone else had ever done before because it combined story with psychology and thinking about the human brain, thinking in terms of thinking about art and literature, that no one was able to do anything with it for basically about 2,000 years. Um, the fact that Aristotle's Poetics survives at all is largely because it was copied for historical information in it, uh, uh, not actually Aristotle's theories about catharsis. Um, and so it lived for most of history uh, for other reasons than Aristotle seems to have intended. And in fact, the entire second half of it was just chopped off because it wasn't considered important enough and we don't know what happened to it. Then in the 1950s in America at the University of Chicago, this professor called R.S. Crane started reading Aristotle's Poetics and he realized that it completely transformed the way that you studied literature. Because literature up to that point in American universities had been studied by treating it as words that you interpreted to get meanings. 
And Crane said, no, 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 no. Aristotle shows us that it's a technology and you don't interpret it, you experiment with it, you use it and you see what its effects are on the human brain. And so Crane started this new school called the Chicago School. They published this big book called Critics and Criticism in the 1950s. And it was supposed to overturn literary studies and revolutionize it and basically make it into a kind of modern science as opposed to a kind of medieval scholastic discipline. And instead everyone was like, no, we don't understand this book. It's too complicated. And no one really read the book. However, one of the students at the University of Chicago, his name was James Phelan. He came to Ohio State in the 1970s and he founded what would become Project Narrative. And he is now kind of the guru of rhetorical narrative theory. And he built this institute, which was basically a kind of countercultural institute, which read literature in exactly the opposite way of everyone else in the world and continues to read it the opposite way of almost everyone else in the world. We do it completely differently. Um, and he gathered together a group of like-minded scholars who revolutionized in this tiny little uh, ecosystem the way that literature worked. And I got a phone call um, about seven or eight years ago, back when I was a professor on the West Coast, because I was doing a lot of narrative theory, but I was doing this thing that no one at Project Narrative was doing, which is that I was combining it with neuroscience. And so instead of just kind of looking at how narrative worked, I was saying, how does it work in the human brain? And how can we take all the machine parts the narrative theorists have discovered, and how can we connect them to what we know about the human brain? And so I was recruited over here uh, uh, to join Project Narrative. And, you know, the book that I published is basically that synthesis of, of narrative theory and neuroscience. But basically, Project Narrative has historically gone into thinking about literature as basically a technology about the kind of blueprints of it and so on and so forth. And then my part is to say, okay, well, how do those nuts and bolts turn the nuts and bolts of the human brain? Wow, that's, that's so fascinating. And then uh, I should probably ask you, uh, well, because we are talking about the fact that, uh, you know, literature is a, is an invention and it's a technology. Um, and, you know, basically for me, when you say narrative and when you say literature, I would kind of in my world, in my context, I would use them as, as the synonyms for story. Yes. Uh, and so I would say stories uh, is an invention. Stories uh, is a technology. In fact, the way I define technology is with three words information processing technology. So for me, story is information processing technology because it's about information. There's some kind of a transfer from A to B, whether it's from one person to another, whether it's from one generation to another, across space or across time and so on. There is something being transferred, but it's not just that. There is kind of a processing because there's a moral of a story. There is something more. So, so the sum is more than all of its parts together. There's like this kind of a aha moment in a story, which without it, you, you don't really have a story. So it's, it's, it's about the processing and it's a technology because just as you said, it's a creation of the human mind. It doesn't exist outside of the human mind. Now, my previous interviewee, Lisa Cron, who wrote Wired for Story, she didn't like the word invention. Uh, she's like, well, you know, I don't, I agree with you, but I just don't like the word invention because we didn't invent story per se. But then they, we go into this kind of discussion as about mathematics. Do we invent mathematics? Do we discover mathematics? You know, 
in either case, to me, it's a creation of the human mind. So if you don't want to call it invention, call it a creation, but it doesn't exist out, outside of here. So this is what a story is. And as you said, and as I've said in my kind of a book outline that I'm trying to work on right now, which is one of the kind of a selfish reasons why I invited you here so much, because your work is absolutely fascinating and very much on point. And I'm kind of stuck on part three of my book right now. And so anyway, uh, you say that story is an operation, uh, operating system of our brain. Uh, as Lisa Kron says, we're wired for story. Uh, story is the operation system of our brain. So perhaps you can go and give us a little glimpse in your next book here about story thinking, because that kind of even captures it in a single word much better, story thinking. The fact that we actually think through story. We don't think logically per se. We don't think, think uh, th I mean, sorry, th uh, think through fallacies or, or, or logical deduction or induction and uh, modus polens and, and I don't know what else, but we actually think through stories and we process the world through stories and we choose what to do next based on those stories, right? So unpack that story thinking idea for us, perhaps. Sure. Yeah, no, of course. And, and you're right. I mean, of course, we can think logically to a certain extent if we try really hard, but most of the time, naturally, we just think in stories. So the starting point for the book is basically whenever I talk to people about story, they would always say, oh, of course, story is a wonderful mode of communication. And that seems to be sort of a truism everywhere. Story is a wonderful mode of communication. But nobody stops to think how bizarre that is. Why would story be a good mode of communication? Stories don't exist in nature. So why would our brain have evolved to be good at processing story? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, stories, I mean, stories cannot possibly have existed in their kind of verbal form, probably prior to about a million years ago or so, which is when, you know, our ancestors developed the ability to speak and so on and so forth. And, you know, the human brain and kind of most of the, the, the circuitry in it is tens, even hundreds of millions of years old. So why would this incredibly ancient machine be so good at processing this relatively new thing? Why wouldn't it be better at processing data? Why wouldn't it be better at processing logic? It, it doesn't make any sense. And then you realize, well, of course, the reason that story works is communication is because that's actually how the brain thinks. And the brain has thought that way for a very long time. And so stories are simply tapping into the way that the brain ordinarily works. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, why does the brain work that way? And how did it come to work that way? And the very quick answer, which I talk about in the book, uh, you know, in, in story thinking is, well, neurons evolved a little over half a billion years ago, and they evolved to do two different functions. Half a billion? About half a billion years ago, a little over 500 million years ago, neurons, the animal neurons evolved, as far as we can tell. I mean, the fossil record is pretty hard to, to read for a kind of soft tissue evidence. But yeah, I mean, maybe 525, maybe 550 million years ago. It's uncertain, but somewhere in that window. So two different types of neuron uh, evolve. Um, the first for two different functions. The first is, is simply processing sensory data, particularly through primitive eyes. And so when you get that sensory data, what you wanna do is you wanna develop an internal representation of it. And that's a very clear inductive system. It's a symbolic system, it's a logical system. And so those forms of neurons ended up forming the visual cortex at the back of the human brain. And then they ultimately propagated forward to certain parts of the neocortex that allow us to do math and other kinds of things. So that's one kind of neuron. The other kind of neuron function to coordinate muscles, actions. 
So how do you get a group of muscles to contract at the same time? Um, how do you, if one muscle is contracting, coordinate it with another muscle, all these kinds of things. Those are the motor neurons. So those neurons do not think in representations, they thought in actions or in sequences of actions. Do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. And so those form the kind of core of our motor cortex and other parts of our brain that are interested in moving our body and planning and processing action. And so we basically evolve with two different kinds of neurons to do two different kinds of thinking that are complementary but distinct. And you would think that if you know logic were the ultimate form of intelligence, over time, our visual cortex and logic would have overtaken all the other parts of the brain and would be driving it, but they're not. Um, instead, they actually probably do much less overall in terms of processing than the motor parts. And the reason for that is that the motor parts can operate in these very information light settings, very volatile settings. They don't need a lot of data or information like our visual cortex does. You know, our, our visual cortex is, is, is one of the most powerful computers in existence. It takes a huge amount of data in and it renders it very rapidly into these kind of three-dimensional images. It's a hugely powerful computer. Um, but even so, it needs data to do that. The other parts of our brain can operate in these volatile shifting situations. And so that's where story thinking comes from. It comes from this fact that we need to plan and plot in response to volatile environments where threats and opportunities are emerging unpredictably. And we have to come up with fresh actions to exploit them. And to do that, we have to imagine ourselves as different characters with different possibilities. You know, um, if if you might act in one, if you, if you act in one situation in one way, I would remember that. And then in another situation, I might call you to mind. I might say, what would Nicola do here? And then I would pretend to be you in that situation. That would give me an advantage, you know? So all these kinds of story mechanisms in terms of character and plot and so forth came out of these motor parts of our brain. And that's why so much of our thought process even today involves planning and involves plotting and involves narrating our lives, saying to ourselves, this is where I came from and this is where I'm going. Any kind of why question, any question of origins, that all is narrative. Um, and the reason it's so effective at being data light is that if you have a single instance of something, you can intervene in that if you can guess the cause. And if you guess the cause correctly, you will then know exactly how to reproduce that effect all the time, just off one data point. Um, and so it's just a much more efficient mode of thinking. And so that's kind of what I mean by story thinking. It's that ability to think in actions, think causally, think in narratives, create narratives, create alternate possibilities, create worlds, um, all those things that go on in the stories that you're talking about. By the way, when can we expect that book to come to become available? So that book, I think, will be out later this year from Columbia University Press. I want to emphasize it's not an incredibly technical book. Um, it was written basically for philosophers. Uh, Columbia called me up and they said, they said, you know, you're writing all this stuff for literary critics, but we think philosophers would be very interested in this because absolutely all of modern philosophy is really built upon either logic or the or anti-logic, basically. So it all comes up. I mean, so basically almost all modern philosophy either forms analytic or continental. Uh, as I imagine most of your listeners know, and analytic philosophy is based back through Bertrand Russell on Frege on Aristotle's organon. And continental philosophy goes backwards through Marx to Hegel 
to Aristotle's Organon. So they all come out of the same set of books, come out of the same logic set of books. And even things like Nietzsche or deconstruction or whatever are about turning logic against logic. So it's all different uses of logic. And what I say in story thinking is, well, what if we just put logic aside and we try and do what philosophers have done with logic, which is make it more rigorous, but with story? What if we make story more rigorous? What if we thought and used story more rigorously? What kinds of things could we do then? What would a philosophy based on story look like if it was more rigorous? And so I kind of talk about that in the book and I talk about why that leads us away from modern AI and towards different forms of technology and different forms of classrooms and why it would kind of basically overturn the educational system as it exists now um, with something very different. Yeah, and the reason why I ask that question is because I thought it's a great leadway towards AI, how AI fits uh, with respect to storytelling, and what, uh, and and especially, uh, what does it tell us about the potential for AI being creative in the way we understand what creativity is? Or, and we discussed a little bit about that in the beginning, and your famous proof that uh, you know AI cannot be that that modern computer-based AI, the way it's being designed right now and the, the way it's been conceptualized so far, cannot be properly creative in the human sense, perhaps. Uh, so can you answer that That's right. That no, that's us? completely correct. Walk us through, through your sure, well, proof. Yeah, so I'll go and I'll talk about the proof in a second, but just to clarify the creativity thing, my argument is not that computers cannot be creative. My argument is that computers can only do a limited kind of creativity known as divergent thinking, which is basically mix and matching from different kinds of symbolic sets. And so there's plenty of examples of that in GPT-3 and whatnot, but that kind of creativity will not allow you to come up with scientific hypotheses. It will not allow you to come up with new forms of technology. It will not allow you to come up with uh, novels, it will not allow you to come up with new business plans, it will not allow you to come up with new political platforms, it will not allow you to come up with new military strategies. So it's actually a very limited kind of semiotic creativity. And I came to this discovery, um, not intending to come to this discovery at all, and in fact, intending to do the opposite. So basically, because I'm very well known in, in, a, in kind of academic circles as this guy who does science and narrative, and because I have a history of kind of working with Hollywood, I got a lot of phone calls to say, hey, could you come and basically help us create a storytelling AI, or could you help us come and make an AI that, that, that makes Hollywood movies and does things like that? And it was very clear from the beginning that that, that stuff was way too complicated to even kind of get into because none of the computers were anywhere near it. And as we can talk about, even GPT-3 is nowhere near it and will never be anywhere near it. And it, it's just all a total disaster. And so all that stuff, I was like, no, no, I don't have time to spend on that. But then I got a call about four or five years ago from a company that was doing natural language processing. And they said to me, we're not trying to crack the whole story thing. We're just trying to crack this problem of basically action verbs. And you know, we just wanna teach computers to process action verbs so that you know, they're not just thinking of a news article as a bunch of text, they're actually thinking of it as a story. And they can actually create their own stories rather than just kind of doing a kind of thesaurus mix and match mashup of texts, you know. Um, and so I thought, okay, here's a very limited problem that can be solved with a bunch of some of the smartest programmers in the world. Let's go do it. Um, and so I went there and we just got nowhere at all. 
And at the time, I didn't understand anything about computer hardware. I understood very minimal stuff about computer programming. And so I kind of felt, well, I need to learn more about how computers work so I can solve this problem, because this is obviously a solvable problem. And part of this was because I actually misunderstood because someone had misexplained to me Alan Turing's fam uh, famous theorem. And that had been explained to me as basically, if a problem is solvable, then a computer can solve it. And so that mis-explanation of the problem had led me to think, well, obviously this is a solvable problem, you know, because the human brain has solved it. Therefore, you know, a computer can solve it. We just have to figure out what it is. And of course, what Turing actually said is, if something is computable, a, com a general computer can compute it. If something is not computable, then no computer is ever going to do it. And narrative is just not computable. Well, how did I realize this? Well, I realized this um, because simply... Computers run logic, they have NAND or logic gates. Logic exists in the mathematical present tense. Um, it says, you know, the thing on this side of the equation equals the thing on that side of the equation, or in other words, the thing on this side of the equation is this thing on the other side of the equation. So it can do representations, identities, all these kinds of things, but it can't do cause to effect. Well, why is that? Well, because a cause and its effect have to exist at different moments in time. So if the cause is in the present, then the effect has to be in the future. Or if the effect is in the present, then the cause has to be in the past. And so you can't do cause and effect in a mathematical system because the mathematical system has to make two things that occur at different times co-occur. So when you put cause and effect into a mathematical system, what you get is this cause equals this effect. Or in other words, fire equals smoke, as opposed to fire leads to smoke. And that's why these equations are reversible. So smoke also equals fire. Um, a good person to read on this, if you're interested in more of it, is Judea Pearl. Um, he's really good. He's got a popular book, The Book of Why, but also his causal calculus and all that kind of stuff is totally brilliant. All his work is completely brilliant. It's total genius. Anyway, I started to realize this, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I realized, well, this is the same problem that Aristotle hit in the Organon. This is the same reason that natural language processors like GPT-3 can never work, can never do these things. Um, it's just a very kind of simple ontological proof. And having hit that point and having realized that, I got a lot of like bizarre emails from members of the general public because you know, I published a bunch of articles, including this article last week in Wired about this. And they would say to me, oh, Angus, you're an idiot because in fact, computers can do causal reasoning. If then is a great example of causal reasoning, you know, um, and they would say all these kinds of things, you know, and I just realized that what has kind of happened in the modern world is that no one actually really understands how computers work. I mean, even a lot of people who work on computers don't necessarily understand the core hardware, don't understand the core logic. Um, and because of that, they just meld intelligence into a computer and they think that whatever intelligence can do, a computer can do. And as I said, the point of this kind of DARPA thing, if it goes ahead, would be to kind of disprove that by building a much simpler machine that can solve problems that computers can't. Um, and once you do that, all of a sudden you realize there's just a different technology that has to be built. If you want to have true AI, you know, you have to build AI that, that, that duplicates both of these human neurons in the brain. That AI would have to combine a computer with a narrative processor go back and forth between the two of those functions to solve complex problems. And I think that's gonna be the future of technology, 
Um, but to get there, we have to kind of debunk this idea promoted by people like Elon Musk and whatnot, that somehow computers are going to lead us to the singularity by themselves. Yeah, and, and maybe you can just unpack quickly about the if, if A, then B. Uh, how is that not an example of, of kind of a, this kind of a, a, a causal relationship that you're talking about? Okay, why is an if-then statement not causal reasoning? Right. Yeah, okay, so yeah. So, well, first of all, to the human brain, it probably seems like it is an example of causal reasoning because we use it colloquially in our way of thinking because the if human brain If smoke, thinks... then fire, or if fire, then smoke. Yes, well, yes, of course, right, yes. So there, there's the classic example. Um, if smoke, then fire, you know. Um, if smoke, then fire does not mean that smoke leads to fire. That would be bonkers, right? You don't have smoke that then produces fire, you know? Um, that would be magical. Um, in the human brain, you know, if then does seem to suggest, you know, if you smoke, if you smoke, you'll get cancer is a, is a kind of classic example, you know? But to a computer, that also means if cancer, then you must have smoked. These are reversible. So the, the whole point is, is that in um, correlational thinking, there's no directional arrow. There's just an equal sign. So fire equals smoke. Whereas in causal thinking, there's, a, there's an arrow that cannot be reversed. And that, by the way, is basically the way your neurons work. Your neuron, one neuron uh, doesn't equal the next neuron, or else your brain would constantly be going around in circles all the time. One neuron activates the next neuron, activates the next neuron, activates the next neuron. So you get a causal chain. And that causal chain means a signal in your brain goes down a line of neurons to activate your arm to extend your arm or whatever. And, you know, that is just a completely different mechanism uh, understood in that kind of broad way than the, you know, one thing equaling another thing. So what's the bottom line? I mean, my podcast is called Singularity FM and, you know, I've been doing this podcast now for, I don't know, 12, 13 years was back in the day, the first podcast uh, on the singularity, AI, transhumanism, and things like that. And basically, I did start as a singularity fanboy. Uh, and now I find myself as kind of like the ostracized gadfly of the community uh, of all of those. So I don't fit anywhere anymore. But can you tell us what does this say, that line of reasoning, what does this say about artificial intelligence in general, or, or I should say general artificial intelligence and the singularity as a kind of an expected phenomenon to which Ray Kurzweil has given a timeline? Well, so first of all, I don't think there can ever be general artificial intelligence because I don't personally believe there can ever be general intelligence. I think what I talked about with the way the human brain evolved is that different mechanisms evolved to solve different problems. And the same is with intelligence. There's different kinds of intelligence because there's different kinds of problems that need to be solved differently by different kinds of intelligence. There's different in intellectual problems. I mean, the way to think about this is the difference between like a hammer and a saw. Um, a hammer and a and saw. And a screwdriver. Yeah. Or a screwdriver. I mean, they're just different instruments. They do different things, you know. Um, and, you know, no amount of, of, you know, perfecting a hammer is going to make it into a saw. No amount of perfecting logic neurons are going to make them into motor neurons. There's a different mechanism there. So there's not going to be artificial general intelligence in the way that people keep talking about. However, there could be a singularity. That's entirely plausible. Um, I mean, the way, the way to think about it is this, I think. Um, the human brain is a machine. It's not magic. It's a machine. It's an evolved machine. 
Um, and I go to great lengths in my work to, to disentangle intelligence from consciousness. Um, story can exist without consciousness. Logic can exist without consciousness. These are mechanical processes. Um, so there's no reason to think that all the mechanical functions that are performed by the human brain could not be performed by another kind of machine, even if that machine was insentient. Um, so we can kind of push consciousness aside. Um, consciousness, of course, has functions, is useful, is a wonderful thing. I'm not diminishing it, but I'm saying, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be there to solve these other problems. Um, so what that means is that if we can build a computer that can replicate the function of, of some of our brain's neurons, and if we can build another machine that mimics the functions of some of the motor neurons in our brain, and then maybe there are other functions that I don't know about that other people will discover of other neurons that can be duplicated with other machines, then over time, of course, we could build a bunch of machines that replicate all the functions of the human brain and that could be scaled and can be and can be used to do things. I mean, that to me just seems something that is completely plausible. Um, I don't, I mean, you know, the one problem I've always had with the singularity is I don't exactly understand why the enthusiasm exists for the singularity. And maybe you can convert me to it. But I mean, you know, I mean, you know, to me, I mean, I think that, um, you know, as humans, we're always kind of looking for something to, I guess, save us from ourselves on some level. And like we could somehow construct, you know, this kind of more perfect thing. And the problem is that to be a human being, we, we have evolved to struggle. And actually, if you look around at the reason that a lot of people are unhappy in their lives today, it's because they're actually resisting the hardness of life. They're actually trying to make life too easy. And then when actually the hardness comes, they freak out and think they can't handle it and run in the other direction. And as a human being, we need struggle, we need growth. Um, you know, we need difficulty, we need challenge, we need goals. If we were just handed everything all at once, uh, our lives would not be very satisfying to us mentally. And, you know, if the universe is a giant simulation, it's not a computer simulation, as I've explained, it can't be a computer simulation because human brains couldn't exist in a computer simulation. But if it is a giant machine that's simulating everything, um, well, then it would explain perhaps why the universe is so messy, because the only way to keep human brains happy is to have some degree of chaos and uncertainty and chance and all the rest of it. So that's my only thing about the singularities. It just doesn't seem like something that we would even really want that much. It seems like something we think we would want until we got it. And then we would get there and realize that it wasn't really as cool as we expected. But maybe you can disabuse me and tell me why the singularity is better than I imagined. Yeah, maybe 10 years ago, I would have uh, done that. Uh, and some people would have said I would have done a decent job of it. I think I'm way past that point now. Uh, and, and I can't stomach doing it, to be honest with you. Um, I, I think and it took me a long time to get there. But I think uh, the singularity is a story, just yeah. like transhumanism is a story. And uh, it's a very powerful story um, for certain kinds of people uh, in certain kinds of contexts. But just like all stories, it uh, and one of the reasons why it's so powerful is that it gives us a meaning. It tells us who we are, where we're coming from, and where we're going. It explains everything in a nice, neat, uh, simple story, if you will. And And... But that doesn't make it true, first of all. Uh, uh, and, and second of all, I'm more interested in the at the more fundamental level at the story part of it. Why is it, why did it grip me the way it gripped me? 
and what other stories can we come up with for our future that are much better than the singularity story or and it doesn't mean that the singularity story is false but but it means that there may be many current versions or scenarios of the singularity story and ultimately i had a breakthrough moment when i was interviewing us two science fiction writers uh, actually one was charlie strauss who told me simple narratives that explain everything are false <laughs> <laughs> and that's the guy who converted me to the singularity in the beginning because the way I discovered the singularity around 2004 or 5 was I was doing a master's degree in political science and I happened to read two books which were the same book from two different perspectives. One was nonfiction written by Ray Kurzweil called The Singularity is Near and the other one was fiction or science fiction called Lobsters. It was a short story called Lobsters and then it became a book by Charlie Strauss called Accelerando which is the singularity basically but as a science fiction story rather than a nonfiction which is what Ray Kurzweil has, had. And when I read those two that story blew my mind. Literally I, I blew off a gasket and, and then Everywhere I turned, it's it's like I got this hammer that I can open any door now with. That tool was so powerful; it explained so much in everything. And then uh, that's one great strength of those tools and those stories. But but then the greatest strength is is usually our greatest weakness too, because a few years later I interviewed another brilliant science fiction writer called Carl Schroeder, and he told me the singularity is a lens. And when you're a photographer, you know, you can have a standard lens. Usually uh, standards are 50 millimeter lenses or according to others, 35 millimeter lenses. But it's very useful to leave that lens and use a wide lens like a 24 millimeter or sometimes even a fisheye lens. And it gives you a totally different perspective. And sometimes you leave that and take a telescopic telephoto kind of lens. And then it gives you a widely different perspective. And he said... For me, the singularity is, a, is like a lens. It's useful, but it's even more useful to have other lenses. And then you look at the world with all those other lenses. And the, that process in its totality gives you a lot more richer picture of the future about what's possible, about who we are, about what's our place in the universe, about where we're going, than if you have just one single uh, lens called the singularity or transhumanism, which are very close to each other, not entirely, but very close to each other. And and by the way, then I started noticing some other elements of the singularity story that it's very teleological and very theological in some ways, if you will. Uh, so uh, that kind of a transcendental uh, sort of... Uh, uh, scientific transcendence is very close to this kind of a theological religious experience and in the end it kind of merges with it and we have even extreme examples like Frank Tipler uh, who is like uh, going to give you this kind of a very uh, extremely religious kind of a point of view of the singularity and he told me the reason why he was right and I was wrong or I didn't perceive that was because he understood quantum mechanics and I didn't. Um, so <laughs> so, uh, so then I started noticing all these kind of the theological elements of the story and noticing this kind of almost a theology uh, uh, around the idea of the singularity and, and how it, it really gives people the same 
tool, the same meaning with the same power that religion does, really. And then I was started, started thinking about, well, really, what is then the commonality between that and, and religion? And what's the underlying structures? And how does it even work to do what it's doing to me and to all those other people? And how can I use this to learn more about the world, about who I am and where I'm going and what I can do for this world, how I can make my difference, my dent in the universe, if it doesn't sound too arrogant. Uh, and, and that's how I got turned on to the power of story. And, and here's where I want to bring you now into the most selfish part of the interview. So um, um, I, I got to this conclusion independently, but about five years I got to this conclusion. Uh, I read a book by um, Jonah Sachs um, called The Story Wars. And I want to read you th this, uh, this uh, excerpt, this, this quote from him. Uh, and, and, and that kind of sets the context about the book that I'm trying to write, which is called Rewriting the Human Story, How Our Story Determines Our Future. And so, and I even wrote about this years ago, and then a couple months uh, ago, I read his book and I was like, oh God, he defined it even better than me. So Jonas Sachs defined this uh, a thing called the myth gap. And he calls the myth gap, quote, the space between the realities of our moment in history and the shared stories to which we turn for explanation, meaning, and instruction for action. That's in page 58 of his book. And, and the reason why I got to that conclusion myself is because take climate change or any of humanity's grand challenges that we have today. We have all the science that we could ever possibly need. We have all the logic which tells us what's going to happen if we stay the course, right? And yet we're not taking action and we're not convincing anyone with all the evidence in the world to take more action. It's grossly insufficient, right? And so then I started looking, how can we change that? And I got to the conclusion that the way we do that is through a story because the old stories that have brought us thus far are now grossly incapable of supplying that kind of guidance of informing the the future possibilities that we're facing and the best possible actions that we should take facing the, the types of crises that we're facing today. And so I thought, you know, the human story has been written and rewritten in the past several times. Probably the last, the last time it was rewritten was around the Enlightenment or the Renaissance or the, the Industrial Revolution kind of period. And those have brought us, uh, that, that particular version of the human story has brought us this far to this day, but now it's kind of obsolete. And Kenneth Burke says that story is equipment for living. It's a tool, as you would say, an equipment for living. But that equipment is now obsolete because the context we're facing is entirely different than the context people are facing 300 years ago or even 50 years ago, if you will. And so we need to come, my argument, my claim here is that I agree with Jonas Sachs that there is this gap and we need to supply a story to fill this gap that would guide us as a species to address our challenges so that we can survive and thrive or create the framework, if you wish, if you will, within the framework that would allow us to start resolving those problems that we're having today. So that's kind of my claim and my approach. And I would also say that it's the greatest leadership opportunity 
possibly in the history of our civilization, but at the very least for the 21st century, but possibly ever uh, in a historical context. And I don't know even if I can ever make that kind of story, but at least I can start the search for it or be one of the people who opens the conversation and as Socrates did, be the midwife to humanity's greatest story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Be the midwife to to others coming up with that story, but but helping us get closer to it. So I spoke way too long here. So because I had to kind of out, lay out these these things here. So please give me now your your feedback about yeah. is that unrealistic? Does that make sense? Do you think that story can or should be doing that kind of a function? Do you think that's our problem, one of storytelling that we're facing right now as a civilization? So I'm going to tweak this a little bit because I think we're in alignment, but we, we might be thinking about this slightly differently. I actually think you just told the story. Huh. I actually think the story that you just told about yourself is the story. And I'll, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Your story was a story of a seeker who is driven by curiosity to arrive at a truth that he then realized wasn't the truth and was moved by deeper curiosity to seek beyond. And so I really think that actually the deep story needs to be a story that is that story, uh, which is your story, which is a story of curiosity and seeking. And I think that a big part of the problem with a lot of is that there are stories about control. So, you know, if we talk, if you talk about, you know, so we could say, for example, well, the problem that we're facing now is climate change. Well, really, that's actually not the problem. The problem is that we can't agree as humans, as a group of humans, you know, and if the problem was just climate change, it could be solved relatively quickly if that was actually the problem. Uh, but the problem is, is that we're on completely different and we can't talk with each other. Well, why can we not talk with each other? Well, it's because each of us is convinced on some level that we have the answer, that we have the truth and that other people are trying to get us off the truth. And it makes us paranoid and angry and suspicious and judgmental. And then you spend a lot of time basically talking about people as though they're idiots um, or controlled, you know? And so, you know, if you're on one side of the political spectrum, it's like, oh, everyone else, they're just like mindlessly brainwashed by, you know, these talking heads. And then you go to the other side and they say the same thing about people on, you know, on the first side and so on and so forth. And the answer to all of that, I think, is curiosity and the willingness to change. If we tell ourselves that actually to be human is to ask questions that we don't know the answers to genuinely and to open ourselves to be changed by what we find, we will solve climate change tomorrow. And we will solve other great problems too. And that to me, that, that story, and that is a different story. I mean, that is a story that has been kind of told in certain moments of history. I mean, the Renaissance was briefly that story. Um, and you could argue that uh, the Athenian democracy was briefly that story of curiosity. But very rapidly, you know, in the Enlightenment, and obviously you mentioned the Industrial Revolution, it became turned into a story of power, of human power. That's the story of the singularity, the idea that knowledge is power, this kind of Baconian idea, and that therefore I know the truth. And because I know the truth, I have power. And if you're resisting me, yes, exactly. And if you're resisting me, I have to dominate and control you or reject you from the system. And now we have these two kind of warring partisan things all the time in every situation we go to where each of them is convinced they have knowledge and power. 
all that would be broken if we just had curiosity, which is what you have. And I have to say, I admire you deeply. And I'm also very envious. I mean, my hero when I was in high school, just to tell you a slightly digressive story, but I think it's relevant. My hero was Malcolm X. And, you know, the reason that Malcolm X was my hero is not because I agree with any of his political opinions at all, but because I read his autobiography and in it, he changed his mind twice. And, you know, history is full of people who change their mind once. They have a conversion experience, they become born again, and the whole rest of their lives, they, how many people change their minds twice? If you change your minds, and that's what you did in your story, you change your mind in terms of you suddenly said, oh, I, I actually think the singularity is, is real. And then you change your mind again and said, I think maybe it's not real. It's that ability to change your mind twice that I think is the essence of being a human because that's true growth. And I think if we can tell those kinds of stories, there's not many of them out there about people who change their mind twice. If you look through literature, how many people change their minds twice in literature? You know, How many people admit to that? Um, but you just did it. You told that story. Um, and you have a podcast, which I imagine may end up in you changing your mind a third time. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe five years from now. And if we can see that as a story and as actually a kind of progress and developments, then I think we will we will have the story that changes humanity. Wow. You, you're blowing my mind. But just to take away the pressure from me and my personality, because I never thought that's the story to begin with. But now you're like kind of blowing my mind, but to take away that kind of pressure for me for the moment. Uh, one of my criticism towards people like Werner Vinge and Ray Kurzweil, both of whom I have had on my podcast here before, is that they've never changed any of their story. You see, Werner wrote his famous 1993 NASA paper where he kind of uh, talked about you know, within 30 years, the human era would have ended. By the way, we're 2022 now. So those 30 years are finishing at the end of this year, by the way. So that's kind of like the extent of Werner's prediction in terms of timing, at least. The end of this year would be it. So people should take notice of that, of that fact. Uh, but Werner never changed his story. Uh, and he sticked to it all his life. Ray Kurzweil, another great example of that. He came up with his story, I don't know if it was in the late 80s or spiritual machines that he wrote like uh, sort of mid to late 90s, but let's say, let's say about 25, 27 years ago, and then he stuck to it. And, you know, he found the curves, the accelerating change, the, the law of accelerating returns, as he calls it. Then he has the stages of the singularity, you know, where... Ultimately, we wake up, the, the universe wakes up, you know, after smart dust and everything, the universe wakes up and everything is smart. And that's the ultimate, you know, end of the singularity. It's kind of this kind of a very teleological, in some ways, theological uh, trajectory where you just replace God with, you know, the AI or the universe wakes up. Uh, but it's the same kind of theological story uh, where theological I use as a criticism or even teleological in, a, in the Aristotelian say, uh, sense towards a purpose, the ultimate unfolding of, of an ultimate purpose. I use that also as a criticism, but they stuck to their guns. They never changed their mind. And to me, after 30 years of life, of living, of learning, of uh, you should at least tweak something, if not completely change it. 
I mean, Albert Einstein changed his mind on quantum mechanics and on a number of other things. And he said it, some of the, the things, I think, whether it was the cosmological constant, I forget, but he said that he was an idiot and it was his greatest mistake. Then it turned out that he was an idiot for thinking he's an idiot because actually it made sense and it was very useful in all kinds of ways. But anyway, the point is that's, that's how growth happens is by changing your mind. And I've not observed that in those two fundamental figures in the singularity, you know, and, and unfortunately I can say the same about transhumanism. Uh, the idea of transhumanism as a philosophy, as an idea, as a story, you basically had that, if not with FM 2030, which is to say in the 60s, uh, you had that in the 80s in the extropian circles uh, and, and those forums. and at the very least in the early 90s, and then it's kind of been cryonically preserved, which is to say dead in other ways, but they will never say dead. They would say cryonically preserved temporarily until it uh, kind of, we bring it back. But to me, there's not been much change. I haven't observed it. Oh. And you know, people would argue with me, but that's kind of like one of the reasons why I'm having issues with it. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, this is the difference between logic and, and science. Logic doesn't change. And that's considered to be the virtue of logic is that logic is always forever the same. And so if you enter into a kind of logic-based system, of course you would never change. Logic is inherently teleological, but actually the end is already in the beginning. So it's not really teleological. It's just always there. You know, I mean, the teleology is a function of the fact that we look at it narratively, but from the perspective of logic, no, that's the, you know, and in fact, a teleology in math is considered a virtue. It's, it's you've proved an identity, you know, it's, a, it's not, it's not considered, you know, tautology, excuse me, is a, is a virtue. So, so, you know, I mean, I think, you know, when you get into a kind of logical mindset, you inevitably lock yourself in, in not changing because logic is the eternal by its very definition. When you have a kind of scientific experimental mindset, what you're saying is I'm curious to know whether or not I'm correct. And I'm going to put that to the test of experience. And the reality is because our heads are very small and our processing power is not is not so great. Um, it's highly unlikely that all of our hypotheses are going to work out unless we're the luckiest person in the entire world. So we're going to be wrong and we're going to have to change our minds. And, you know, I mean, Darwin changed his mind a lot. Um, he actually, at the end of his life, you know, went backwards on Darwinism, like you're talking about with Einstein. And, you know, and so it's that quality of openness that I trust in people. And again, that comes from this deep curiosity, which comes from the opposite of ego. You have to be a real egomaniac, you know, to think that you are right about something. And, you know, you, you are a curious person if you wonder if you might be wrong about something and you see an opportunity to grow. And again, stories are all about the excitement of learning something new and the idea that new things are actually good for you as opposed to refuting you or destroying what you thought originally. And so going back to the story you told, I mean, I just think we need to encourage a culture where people realize that being wrong is actually a gift because it means you've taken a chance and in taking that chance, you've grown your understanding. And we don't want people to feel like somehow if they go out there and make a bold statement and it's proven to be incorrect, that that's a failure. The success is making a bold statement and then having the courage to test it. And if it turns out to be wrong, you can make another bold statement and test that. And that's what we do collectively as humans, is we engage on this voyage of discovery into the unknown, as opposed to ideology, 
which is constantly imposing our own logical preconceptions and interpretations. I mean, this is the problem with Marxism to me is, you know, Marx has this very wonderful idea that sounds like a wonderful idea. And, it, you know, and when I first heard it, I thought the same thing that you thought about the singularity. I thought, oh, of course, Marxism must be correct. Um, but it just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And, you know, you have to have the guts to say, okay, it was a great idea, but that plane didn't fly. I've got to invent one that actually does. And I think telling the story, whether it's about yourself, whether it's about um, Einstein, whether whoever it is that you want to tell the story about, but someone whose curiosity leads them to change their mind. I do think that's the story for the future. And that's a much more exciting future for me, the curiosity as opposed to the singularity. Yeah, and I say that multiplicity is actually better than the singularity for a variety of reasons. First, because in biology, what we observe is not a singularity, but it's a multiplicity. It's enormous, countless multiplicity, diversity. And in cases where in a certain ecosystem, you may have a singularity where a single, a single species goes on a rampage and kills and eats all of the other ones, then you, you end up with a single point of failure and then extinction. And so that's that's the, the the most clearly demonstrated dead end, I think, in terms of, um, you know, uh, that's why I say that the multiplicity is safer than a singularity for for oh. for evolutionary and for all kinds of other reasons. I mean, you just completely summed up my entire view of biology there. I completely agree with that. That is completely brilliant. That's why when you walk, go for a walk in the forest, there's not an ideal platonic tree. There are many different kinds of trees, you know? And to your point, actually singularity is fragility. Um, again, you know, this is what I point out in the Wired article is that our obsession with optimization actually creates these incredibly narrow, hyper-specialized things that break immediately if anything changes at all. Whereas if you have a, a, a biological system, it's robust, durable, anti-fragile even because it has all this diversity in it, because it has this multiplicity in it. And it's just odd to me. I mean, it's just why don't we want to go around and encourage people to think differently, to have different passions? It's so much more fun, too. I mean, just imagine if you and I just liked exactly the same things, wore exactly the same things. You know? It's like, I'll come over to your house. It would be just like my house. It's like, why am I even coming over to your house? You know, whereas it's like you're a different person. You have different passions. You have different enthusiasms. I learn from you. You know, I go to a different country. I eat different food. I mean, that is the joy of life as well as the sustainability of life. And so the problem is that our systems create very strong incentives for consistency and for conviction. So if you have very high conviction of something, of a certain particular point of view, and if you are gifted with words or stories that can sort of perpetuate that view to, to the public, you are rewarded for being consistent over time. And the more consistent you are, the more rewarded you are, which is, by the way, one of the problems in science too, which is why, you know, Max Planck said science move, uh, progresses one funeral at a time uh, because careers are destroyed if people have to change their mind in, in some of those scientific circles. And careers were destroyed when Einstein's theory of relativity was proven to be correct. Uh, and, and then quantum mechanics turned the field once again upside down after Einstein, right? And so um, uh, take any YouTuber or public pundit today, uh, uh, you know, consistency 
is rewarded. Conviction is rewarded. And if you have doubt in your own self, that's not being rewarded. That's, let me, that let me makes... Try. Let me try something on you. I agree with you, by the way, that our system encourages that that behavior. But I also think that there are lots of historical examples of people who broke with that and became even more successful. Shakespeare is a great example. Shakespeare does not have consistency. Shakespeare is constantly changing the genre, everything that he's doing, all his plays over his career. And I think what Shakespeare points us to is that actually the ultimate currency is less consistency than authenticity. And I think people mistake consistency for authenticity. They think, oh, this person is telling the same story over and over again, therefore they're reliable. But actually, true authenticity is being able to be yourself through change. And being and inconsistent, do... too. Having the courage to admit yes. that you're human and that you're not logical and that you're not yes. consistent. And yes. that you have quirks that you can't explain, that that don't make sense, that make you weird and... Maybe unattractive, maybe unpopular, but they're true. They're yours. <laughs> Dude, that is completely speaking everything that I believe 100%. And I think in almost all human hearts, the same thing is believed too. And I just think the same, I just would say to you, just tell that authentic story. It may take time because our universe, you know, our moment in history is, you know, particularly obsessed with efficiency and, and, and some of these other things. But over, I mean, Shakespeare was not actually that popular in his own lifetime. I mean, he was popular, but it wasn't like, you know, he is now. And it takes time for real authenticity to gain that kind of traction. And I think a lot of people get discouraged by kind of short-term thinking in terms of, oh, what's going to hit immediately and what's going to happen now. And the reality is we remember almost none of those things from the past that everyone at the time thought was so amazing. But we remember those deep moments of authenticity that in their own time were not necessarily the brightest star but over time grew brighter and brighter and brighter because their origin was infinitely sustainable. So, I mean, my, my thing to you is, is basically, you know, just have the courage of your own honesty. Um, and over time, that's going to outlive Kurzweil and, and or all these other guys, you know, who maybe now seem like they're kind of making more noise, but will prove brittle uh, in the long run in history. Yeah, and I don't want to make this about me because I have no regrets and I've always been authentic in the sense that, you know, I've always been a gadfly. Uh, the name Socrates is my blogging name. That wasn't a name I picked myself. It was a name given to me when I was in the army. And uh, in the army, when you're called Socrates, that's not a compliment, let me tell you. That's very derogatory uh, because questioning orders or... Uh, rules or any arrangement in a, in a military context in some situations can get you shot on the spot uh, by your own superior superiors. Uh, so it's not the wisest strategy for survival. And, you know, I, I have about, about, I think I forget, um, 24 days uh, in detentions in, in solitary uh, for, for transgressions uh, in front of uh, 600 people uh, <laughs> with I mean, my commanding officer and stuff I, like that. I admire you so deeply. I mean, I had a brief period where I went through actually Marine Corps boot camp and uh, I had, I had uh, similar um, struggles with authority. What I will say, and I know you know this is true from your own experience, is that even though the gadflies are disliked in the peacetime military, those are the guys that win the wars. Because it's in the war that you have to question, that you have to think differently, that you have to have the initiative. Um, that's why the gadflies become special operations, become the SAS. Uh, that's why Clausewitz wrote on war 
which kind of rejected the kind of enlightenment kind of dogma about, you know, you can win battles in advance. So at the end of the day, it is the Socrates out there in, in, in the military that actually allows the military to exist and survive. And so even though like a lot of organizations, they kind of turn on that in their, in their, in, in certain moments, you probably uh, have more of the heart of a general than whoever it was that threw you in the brig. Well, Angus, I, I'm I'm concerned here where this is becoming a little bit too much self gratifying self gratifying for, for me. Uh, it's kind of getting in a, in a in a dangerous point because Epictetus says when someone tells you that you're special and 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 that you're unique, you know, question that kind of thinking. Uh, uh, plus, it's not really about me. It's it's more about the human story about uh, my uh, in my book uh, or the idea. Though I would consider your suggestion uh, very carefully. But uh, the idea was that um, the dangers of artificial intelligence. I claim on my chapter outline about AI uh, stem from the same point that uh, that we have the dangers of humanity. Uh, stemming from, which is to say our story. And our story so far, for lack of a better term, would be called humanism. And I go to break down humanism into four major points. The story of progress, the story of supremacy and centrality of humanity, the story of our separation from nature, and ultimately the story of becoming gods. Whether that's traditional humanism, whether it's theology, whether it's transhumanism, in the Kurtzwellian sense, it's always kind of you know, super beings or gods, there's this kind of a transcendent teleology from our ape beginnings. And in the biological sense, it's the same story, by the way, because, of course, transhumanism is grounded in evolutionary theory in some ways and evolutionary. But we are the pinnacle of evolution, of course. Um, and I say that if the AIs embrace that kind of a same story, of course, they're not going to call it humanism. They're going to call it AIism. And, of course, not us, but they would be the pinnacle of evolution. And of course, not us, but the almighty, all-knowing artificial superintelligence would be the new gods. Then, of course, they're free to do with us the same things that we have done to the world so far. And, and so that's why I say that the greatest danger stems uh, for to the world stems from our story, and this, and now that story may have gotten to the point of self-destruction, so it's brought us thus far, but if we don't change that story, which gives us a blank check, basically, with the world, we're already in deep trouble. And if others embrace the same story in their own context that serves them, we're toast, whether they're alien intelligences, whether they're artificial intelligences. And so we'd better change that story yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I love that. I think that's a very wonderful description of humanism. I mean, obviously, as you know, humanism can mean different things, but even in the Renaissance, you see all those different narratives kind of combining in various ways. Um, and, you know, the key point is, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of the narrative of evolution. Evolution, people misunderstand evolution as though it's going somewhere, that it has a purpose. And this, of course, famously leads to eugenics. Um, and this idea is how you can breed a perfect human. And going back to your earlier point, that is biologically impossible. You cannot breed a perfect human. You would breed a perfect human and then it would get killed by a bacteria um, because it had been overperfected, you know? And actually, evolution is by natural selection. Um, and so humans are not actually the main engine. So going back to your thing about humanism, the whole idea behind humanism is that somehow we as humans are the end point of power. And we have the ability to make everything and determine everything. 
the purpose of evolution by natural selection is that nature is actually the most powerful thing in the room and that nature is blind, insentient, diverse, um, all these kinds of things. And so, and that's another kind of story going back to what you were saying, because I mean, the whole thing is, is, is if nature is ultimately the story, then our opportunity in life is to go into nature and understand nature and explore nature and participate in nature, um, both in the sense of the nature outside us, but also the nature within us. And not to get into this kind of odd, kind of um, uber platonic idea that we will ascend out of nature like gods and then perfect it in our own image. Um, so I completely agree with you that the humanist narrative as you have laid it out is causing a lot of our problems. Um, and I completely agree that the obvious alternative to it is some more accurate, richer understanding of what evolution actually is um, and our role in general within nature is. A new story that tells us who we are, where we're coming from and where we're going. I used to think that that story could be the singularity of transhumanism. I don't think that's the case anymore. I am lacking a better alternative. I just see the gap that Jonah Sachs is talking about. And I see it as a great opportunity for me, for you, because you are honestly much more the expert than me, for anyone out there listening or caring about this. That's that's what I think. But the other thing that I think is that unfortunately I've kept you for two hours and I can easily keep you for another two hours because I love everything you've done and I love talking to you. I'm learning so much. And I know I'm going to be re-watching this several times because because it's going to give me so many new ideas and jumping off points. So I, I may actually ask you uh, uh, again to come back to my podcast to potentially pick up where we're living uh, at right now. But before we call it a day, let me ask you the two usual questions I always ask in the end, because I know you, you're kind of, you have to go. Um, first of all, where can people find more about you and your work? The simplest thing is just go to my website, angusfletcher.co, and it has a bunch of my academic articles on there and you know podcasts and videos I've done. And if people want, they can reach out and email me directly. My email is out there in the public domain because I'm a professor at Ohio State at Project Narrative. So if you Google Angus Fletcher Project Narrative, you'll find my email almost immediately. Fantastic. And that's, of course, how I found you myself. Okay. And then the final question, what's the last story you want to the story you want to send us off with we we talked about so many diverse things we went into so many directions that i didn't expect we're going to go which in a way is why uh you know i've questioned where i should keep uh calling my sing my podcast a singularity podcast singularity fm because i've so moved on from there in, in a way but in another way i think it still fits very well because it's a black hole every time i start a conversation with a person like you it's a black hole we don't know what's gonna happen where we're going to end up and and which way we're going it's kind of like we're jumping in be beyond the event horizon and whatever happens happens and there those are unique occurrences that cannot be replicated uh you know we, if we we can do the same thing if we rerun the tape it's never going to happen again like it did happen in this specific occasion so how do you think we should wrap up our conversation with you today what's the best message or story that you want to send us away with well what i honestly love uh, nicole and i won't praise you anymore because i know that makes you uncomfortable but i i do love your idea of the gap and the search for the untold story what's the next story 
And I think that that's a kind of collective search that we can all go on together, not the story that's existing in a library somewhere, not the story that we have already told ourselves, but what is the next story out there waiting to be invented, waiting to be discovered, waiting to be created? What is that untold story which will take us on the next chapter of our collective journey away from some of the dangers that you have indicated and toward some of the possibilities uh, that await in our future? Wow. Angus Fletcher, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I had a blast talking to you today. I had a blast too. And anytime you want me back, I am here. Fantastic. I'll take you up on that. Thank you so much, Angus. I'll cut it off right here. Uh, usually it takes me about, you know, two or three days, provided that everything in the editing process gets uh, okay. Uh, two or three days to publish it. As soon as it's live, I'll send you a link to let you know. That sounds perfect. And you see, we didn't need to edit anything. It all just worked out just totally fine. And honestly, I mean, I meant everything that I said. Uh, I mean, I'm really just completely deeply impressed. I mean, we have an enormous amount psychologically in common in terms of the way that we see things, the kinds of things we value. Um, and I am just really awed by what you're doing. So, um, you know, you know, I, I hope, you know, I hope, uh, I hope this podcast lands with your audience and, uh, you know, and if you want me back on in the future, because there's more things you want to explore when you come out with your book, you know, obviously let me know. Um, and uh, I just, yeah, I'm just very impressed. Thank you so much. This is very meaningful to, to me. You cannot even imagine. Uh, as far as my audience goes, I don't know, because I, I'm kind of going against what they would expect me to go, which I have a history of doing which is why, why my podcast has been popular among a fringe group of people, uh, but uh, not become mainstream, even though it was one of the first podcasts of its kind, if, if not the very first in the world of its kind. Uh, I mean, I have had about 7 million downloads, which is not bad, but when you break it over 13 years and over 300 episodes, you see it's not really that impressive. Uh, but 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 then again, the people I, I actually get are very high quality people, uh, very kind of unique individuals. I'm, I'm kind of often shocked by the kind of people that, that end up listening to my podcast. Uh, and so I, I'm enjoying the journey. Uh, yeah. Well, it is actually better to impact a small group of really smart people than it is to kind of kind of kind of glitter across the surface. I mean, I've been on a bunch of podcasts which have very high, uh, you know, audience, you know, numbers. And I think a lot of that occurs largely because those podcasts are giving people what they already want to hear, as opposed to kind of challenging them to think and open their minds and grow. And I just don't think you end up having much change. You don't cause much change in the world by just kind of pandering to people. You do have to kind of take that extra step and have the courage so, I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe someday one person who will listen to, to your podcast will end up being the person who literally changes everything. Um, and then, you know, that was it. You know, it was just that one person. I, I hope so. If we all throw, have thrown our pebbles in the water and, and, and let's see <laughs> where the circles kind of intersect. I'm very happy my circle intersected with your circle because I love your work. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.
Thank <laughs> you.